It's February 20th, 1962, 9.47 a.m. All eyes are on Cape Canaveral, Florida. A live television audience of about 135 million people are watching, listening, holding their collective breaths. Miles away. That rock is going to land, and then you're going to hear and feel. It's an exciting moment, one of hope, awe, fear, and wonder as Mission Control performs its final system checks on Friendship 7, the first NASA mission to carry an American astronaut into space. This morning, a man went around the world, 25,000 miles. The first hero of the space age receiving a hero's welcome today. Russia had sent the first human to space with Yuri Gagarin's orbital flight 10 months earlier. But so far, no American had spent more than 15 minutes in space. A distinction that left America in an unusual spot. Second place to its Cold War adversary. An impatient President Dwight Eisenhower had recently bolstered NASA. And as every American knew, the space race was on. I'm going to lay the facts before you. The rough with the smooth. Some of these security While there were a host of engineers, mathematicians, and scientists who helped propel Glenn into orbit, one in particular deserves the credit not only for launching him into space, but for bringing him back. The girl, as astronaut John Glenn called her. That girl was research mathematician Katherine Johnson, a 44-year-old African-American mom of three whose meticulous calculations were part of the pre-flight checklist and whose against-all-odds journey is just as impressive as John Glenn's. At Cross-Border Solutions, Genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. Growing up in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia in the early 1920s, Katherine Johnson counted everything. She counted steps. She counted stars. She counted the distance to church. She was fascinated by math, and she was an exceptional math student in school. As adept at reading and writing as she was in arithmetic, Johnson was soon skipping grades. She started high school at 10, college at 15, and at 18, she graduated with degrees in math and French, summa cum laude, with the highest average of any previous student in the school's history. Her school years may sound ideal, but as a youngster living in the South, her childhood was coated with intense racial prejudice. She had to sit in the back of buses, climb to isolated theater balconies, and use colored water fountains and bathrooms due to segregation. Johnson, along with her siblings, attended West Virginia State College. And it was there, for the first time in her life, that she encountered educated men and women of color. She studied math and French and continued to push herself to excel, not only in her academic life, but in other areas as well. She took home economics, learned to play tennis, and even learned how to ride a motorcycle and drive a car later in life, at a time when most women still did not do such things. 
As happy as she was in this cocoon of learning, fear always hovered in the background. Behind the textbooks, extracurricular activities, and interpersonal connections, there was a feeling among black students that you were never quite safe, that you needed to watch your back. In her junior year of college, Johnson was introduced to an individual that would have a lasting impact on her life, Dr. William Waldron Shiflin Clater, the third black professor in the country to get a PhD. Witnessing her exceptional skills in the classroom, he advised that she'd make a good research mathematician. What's that? she asked. Johnson didn't even know people of color could get jobs beyond teaching. So a research mathematician sounded daunting, but Dr. Clater promised to train her. When she had taken every math course the college offered, he pushed her to take a couple more. He even created a class just for her, Analytic Geometry of Space. It would take her 20 years before she'd work at NASA, but the professor had laid an important professional foundation. Meanwhile, Johnson was building a personal one. She married James Goebel in 1940 and had three girls in relatively close succession. Joylette in 1940, Connie in 1943, and Kathy in 1944. The pair moved around over the years, supplementing their incomes during the summer, working for wealthy white families. Johnson was a live-in maid, James a chauffeur. But the thought of becoming a research mathematician stayed in the back of her mind. In 1952, Johnson moved to Newport News, Virginia, where she met Dorothy Vaughn, the supervisor of the black mathematicians at NACA, the precursor to NASA. Based at Langley Field in Hampton, the group was known as the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Vaughn encouraged Johnson to apply for a job. In June of 1953, the call came to join NACA in the West Area Computers Group, where an all-black group of women manually performed complex mathematical calculations for the program's engineers. Initially, the position was temporary, but two weeks in, Vaughn assigned Johnson to a project in the Maneuver Loads branch of the Flight Research Division, where she'd analyze data from flight tests. Douglas Edwards reports. Then headlines around the world echoed the news. Russia had blasted a man-made moon into outer space. On every continent and in every Today, land. a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. Here an artist's October 4th, 1957. The Soviet Union launched the first Earth-orbiting artificial satellite, Sputnik 1. The 22-inch round, 183-pound aluminum satellite beeped around the Earth every 98 minutes, traveling at a peak speed of about 18,000 miles per hour. The launch astonished the world and shattered America's confidence in its own technological world dominance. Some of these security facts are reassuring. Others are not. They are sternly demanding. President Eisenhower was anxious to get the U.S. back in the space race. On July 29, 1958, the President's Science Advisory Committee renamed NACA to NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, expanding it into an agency with the mission to plan, direct, and conduct aeronautical and space activities. That's also when the name of the Hampton-based Langley Field, where Johnson worked, was changed to Langley Research Center. Another monumental event. Desegregation had landed at Langley. No more colored restrooms. So long colored areas in the cafeteria. The move affected Johnson personally and professionally. Originally assigned the task of preparing data charts and doing mathematical equations for an all-male team of engineers, Johnson knew she could perform the calculations quicker than any of them. Feeling empowered, she asked if there were laws that prohibited her from sitting in on their meetings, 
so she could hear data firsthand as opposed to after the fact when information was relayed to her. Soon, Johnson was asked to lay out the path of NASA's first orbital flight. In November 1959, her 34-page paper, Determination of Azimuth Angle at Burnout for Placing a Satellite Over a Selected Earth Position, chock full of equations, launch case studies, calculations, charts, and reference texts, would be used to direct NASA's first flights into space. When the report was published in 1960, it was the first time a woman of any race had been listed as a co-author. Fast forward to 1962. Astronaut John Glenn was feeling anxious. He needed precise calculations for his trajectory into space and placing America's critical space mission, not to mention his own life in the hands of NASA's new IBM 7090 computer, was about as comfortable as the inside of the Friendship 7. Glenn was known to check and recheck every aspect of his flight obsessively, and he asked his engineers if the computer's calculations were correct. When no one could assure him convincingly, he ordered, get the girl. Get the girl to check the numbers. The girl? Yes, sir. The smart one. I mean, she says they're good. I'm ready to go. All right, we'll get into it. Armed with her calculator, Johnson worked out every equation for the trajectory of a mission that was scheduled to include three orbits. The computer had spit out numbers already, but it was up to Johnson to ensure they were correct. So, digit after mind-exhausting digit, she computed, tap-tap-tapping on her calculator, furiously writing down equations and pausing along the way to check and double-check her numbers. A day and a half later, with a thick pile of data sheets in hand, she finished. The numbers matched. Thanks to her calculations, John Glenn was ready for takeoff. Hello, I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear. Today we're speaking with Joylette Heilick and Katherine Moore, co-authors of a new memoir by Katherine Johnson called My Remarkable Journey. And yes, if those names sound familiar, that's because they also happen to be Johnson's daughters. So nice to meet you both. We are so excited that you're here, and I was really, really touched by your book. Congratulations to both of you. And so I just wanted to say first, wow. Of course, I saw the movie Hidden Figures, but reading the book really opened my eyes to a lot about your mom's life. What an incredible story she has. Can you tell us why it was important for her and for you to write and share her full story in this memoir? Well, it was only after she was asked to write it because, you know, before the movie and all of that, mom was perfectly fine. <laughs> You know, she just was a very even-keeled, wonderful person, but she always wanted others to know who she was by what she did. She did her work. She had her job that she loved. She said, I never worked a day in my life. And the values of her parents were instilled in the four children. And then she wanted young people who were her real special group to understand that they could do anything they wanted to do. And if writing the book would help them, then that was her job. Joylette, did you want to add to that? Yeah. The first draft of this book was 10 years ago, and it was 13 pages, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So that's how much of a writer we are. Anyway, but I had in mind to say to mom that Granddaddy did a magnanimous job, and I felt that 
the movie didn't show that. And of course, that's their party. But we wanted people to know just what granddaddy and mama did to raise their children to be college graduates and what it took to do it. And the only way was to write it down. And Kathy said, you know, mom, I mean, we never thought about what these days would be like. We hadn't even thought about it at all. And so we weren't doing it in preparation of, we wanted to give homage to granddaddy and my mom to do what they did for over eight years to educate these kids. Granddaddy couldn't drive a car, so he had to make that adjustment. They didn't ask for or receive money, so it was all by what he did, mostly what Mama did and supported what the kids did when they were old enough to do it. And so we just thought it was worth telling because people think you make these high achievements by having money and having position, and that's not the case. It's just having commitment and a will to do and a focus and love and support to do it. And this is what we hope the book would do for younger people and for people who don't have everything in the world, because those young people sometimes fall far short because they expect everything to be handed to them. These kids did not do that. Kids meaning my mother and her siblings. That brings me to the first chapter titled, Nobody Else is Better Than You, which I believe is something your grandfather had said to your mom. Can you explain how that mantra shaped your mom's life? Well, I think he sort of said, because of the way I guess White Soft wasn't the way Granddaddy lived and how he thought and his faith and all that made him who he was to say that you should not feel inferior to anybody, nor should you feel superior to anybody. So it put her on an even keel of not looking down on her classmates who were not as smart or, well, genius never came into anybody's mind, but mom never did that. And even at work, She never embarrassed anybody. She always wanted her classmates to know what she knew. You know, she wasn't one to hold her worth so she could jump up to the front of the class. She only did that if the other ones wouldn't ask questions to get clarity on what was being discussed. So really fast forward to NASA. When my mother went into that office of 20 engineers and white shirts and ties, It didn't bother her. She knew what she knew, and she knew they needed it. And so she was there to do her part. That's really what it was about. She liked the challenge of hard work, and she just always wanted to help. What a resolve she had. Catherine, do you want to add to that? I was just going to say, when Granddaddy said, nobody is better than you, and you are no better than anyone else, that meant she always walked with her head held high but never haughty. She approached life head on. And to me, what he said translated for her into a person of vision, dignity, and, you know, what you see is what you get. If they asked her questions, she knew the answer. She said, I'd like to do good work because I didn't want them to ask me to do it twice. So she had a questioning intellect always wanting to learn. And that, I think, she took seriously from that one simple mantra. He modeled what he wanted, and they delivered. All four of them finished West Virginia State and went on to lead productive lives, except the one that died in World War II. Catherine, I mentioned the book is written so conversationally. I felt like I was sitting in your mom's living room. What did you learn from being part of this process? Were there things that surprised you about your mom's life that you didn't know before? Not really, because we were a talking family. We played together. We sang together. We enjoyed the different generations. And she had three girls. So we grew up with her sewing our clothes. Then she taught us to sew or how to be ladies. You know, we were all part of groups. She was very much an open book. She didn't hide herself from us. We went through a lot of, you know, sad times, serious times, but we also had fun. So 
most of it was just having it laid out in a timeline that I think was what was different. By the time the historical facts were added to the book, that just put it in perspective. But we lived her life the years that we had with her, but we lived her earlier years through the stories she would tell us or my uncle and aunt would tell us. And our grandparents were not talkers, they were doers. So we had the modeling and we had the oral stories, but we had, you know, the life with her and we saw her often and it was just a joy. Catherine, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I felt that we felt blessed because mom and dad were very calm in their demeanor. So we had obviously several adversities, several ups and downs, but they never were hysterical or losing their temper or any of that. So we dealt with all those things on a fairly even keel. And mom, you know, we never heard her scream. We never heard daddy scream. Granddaddy, of course, never screamed. So we were looking at things very calmly. And mom would say, well, if this is our adversity today, then we move on to the next thing. If you said you read the book, for example, when my father died during the Christmas holidays, when time came to go back to school, we say mom marched us into the principal's office because we were older than the movie showed. We were 13, 14, and a week before I was 16 was when he died. She told the principal, now, we understand that you all know that dad died because we were in a segregated school. Everybody knew us. Everybody knew mom and dad. He said, but the girls have to get ready for college, so let's get on with it. Don't do them any favors. They got to get back in the swing of things and do what they have to do. So there wasn't any whining. I don't want to. I don't feel none of that. It was always moving forward. If you have a problem, either work it out or work around it and keep going. That's pretty much how we live. I don't think anybody, any of us was hysterical about anything. I was also struck by the fact that your mother worked as a live-in maid during her summers off from teaching and that your father was a chauffeur and that they often lived in servant housing working for wealthy white families. She writes, These are the kinds of jobs that Negroes took in those days to make ends meet. So I didn't spend any time meditating on the fact that Jimmy and I probably had as much or more education than both our employers. We did what we needed to do for our family. So what quality would you say she possessed that made that kind of thinking possible? Joylette, I'll start with you. Well, we'll go back to granddaddy's statement. You're no better, but no less. And so what their goal was that during the summer, because they made $65 a month thereabouts for teaching, that they had to get through June, July, and August. So the focus was have a job so that we can eat and get through the summer months. So she didn't think anything of it because it was, I have a job to do and I'll do it. And and they did. The people were pleasant. I mean, they were fairly nice people, I think. You know, that mantra follows through in just about everything. It helps you get through everything. What are your thoughts on that, Catherine? I was just going to add, in that era, you know, when you had to work in the homes, that did not mean you had to be submissive. I think a lot of the misunderstandings come from what they depict in the movies and all. My parents were educated black husband and wife with three children that this family, the one I vaguely remember because I was quite young, I was probably four or five, they allowed my father and mother to bring their children and live over the garage, which was big enough for all of us, and to sometimes go into the big house, as you'd say, and we'd watch movies in the evenings with their children. It wasn't as if it was a horror place, you know, or we lived out behind the house kind of thing. We knew our place. My parents, like I say, they were not stupid. They knew. They were insightful and realistic. That did not mean submissive or less than. And their worth 
was in their person, not in their jobs. They internalized all those lessons from their parents. She was responsible and excelled in school and in life. So it didn't hurt her to do housework then if she was doing it for the right reasons. I have one more comment. One of the homes they worked in, dad was like more like a butler or whatever, and the driver and mom would cook. Uh, they would switch roles periodically. And so that dad would make sure that they were not disrespectful to my mother. And so he was on, you know, on site when things were, were happening. And so he sort of set the tone for the level of respect that they were going to have to give these nice people that waited on them. As part of that, in this case, working for the Belcher family, your mom describes a scene where, Joylette, when you were five, you were thrown from a horse. Mr. Belcher was showing you how to ride. And you got a cut above your lip that required medical attention, but it was during segregation, and the closest hospital was for white people only. So, though Mr. Belcher tried to use his influence to get you in, you couldn't go until the following day. Your mom writes, quote, I was angry. My child was denied medical treatment because of her race. If she had been more seriously injured, what would have happened to her? To this day, Joylette has a faint scar on her lip from that accident. I always appreciated that the Belgers treated us with respect, but at the same time, we understood that we were the help. Unquote. So, is there anything you remember from that time? Well, I don't remember a whole lot. I probably remember it because we always talked about it. And whenever I go to the dentist, it's not a big scar, but, you know, scars are not flexible. So I would always let the dentist know so that when he or she started their work, they were aware of the inflexibility of that corner. But mom and dad, dad was a science major. So we stayed into the science thing. That wasn't a requirement when they met, but it was a common element between them. And they just did first aid stuff on me that night until they were able to take me in and get the stitches the next day. Still, there was nothing else to do. I don't know how much further another hospital would have been to take me, but those are some of the unwritten things that you go through in that kind of environment. How many stitches did you have to get? I think, as I remember, about three or four. And Catherine, did you want to say something about that? Well, I didn't remember any of that because, I, like I said, I was either four or five at that time. But what I do, I think, at this point in my life, understand is you choose your battles. You know, you my dad knew what time they were in. They knew how to stay in their lane. But you didn't have to be submissive and so humble that they could, you know, just push you around. They were dignified at all times, no matter what uniform they wore. And that's what I think I was most proud of, that when I think back to those times and how they endured that Jim Crow era more so than we did in the 50s and 60s, this was probably in the late 40s and early 50s for them, it was untenable if you dwelt on it as such. But we lived in a rich culture where Black people had a way of surviving, as Joelette said. And when you're taught by the best, then your product is turns out pretty good. And we think we had very good role models because they didn't let things get them down. We were not depressive. They were not depressed people. They were not fearful people. We didn't have bitterness. We didn't grow up with it. So I just think her steps were ordered. It always seemed that we could always see the sun. I'll put it that way. No matter how bad things got, we knew they wouldn't last always. My mother was quoted as saying, Choose your battles for the greater good. Our family mm-hmm. survival was more important. Yeah. That, that's beautiful. I love that. So we know your mom was teaching for many years when you were both young, but in her mind, 
she had decided on a career as a research mathematician. And this, as we know, was a difficult, almost insurmountable field for African-Americans, let alone an African-American woman. I'm going to start with you, Catherine. What would you say made her so determined and so sure she'd somehow get there? You know, she always took seriously her teachers because they right away saw that she was different. I'll use the word precocious, but she was not a little devil, you know. She didn't get into trouble. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, she had a part in the story where she talked about throwing rocks if somebody messed with her because she was the little one on the scene all the time. So people didn't bully her because they knew she was as tough as her two brothers had taught her to be. But she also knew how to be a lady. And I know she took very seriously those expectations. And when the professor said to her, you'd make a good research mathematician. I'm going to see that you're ready. She took that to heart. She said from then on, it was nothing else she even thought about doing. She knew she was preparing to be a research mathematician. And now you figure that had to have been in the 30s when she was in school. She helped write the first book on space at NASA. So it was a vision. I mean, he made her see the possibilities, and she was not going to disappoint. So she always did the best she could do in her job. When she started out, they said, you either could only be a teacher or a nurse. And she didn't want to be a nurse. So she loved her teaching. She was a born teacher because she was four years old, and they were looking for an Catherine had walked up the street to the little one-room schoolhouse, and she was helping her brother, (laughs) a two-room schoolhouse. She was helping her brother, who wasn't as good at math as she was. And we always thought that was funny, because if you knew her brother, they looked as much like twins. But he said she was always following them, and they would you know, just make sure she was okay and keep moving. But she was helping them do their math work. And at that time, they were two grades above her. So, Joylette, what's your reaction to that? Okay, I concur. Kathy and I, we rarely disagree. We just talk about it in different ways because she's an educator and I'm in science. But I said that Dr. Clater from University of Pennsylvania said he was going to prepare her and one of her principles is be prepared so that when the opportunity presents itself, you're ready. Don't wait. Don't look for the opportunity without being ready. So she taught school seven or eight years. And when someone told her about this, I think she thought as much about the big challenge of going into something totally new because there was no space development or education in our country at the time because they just had to bring together some very, very, very smart people and start from scratch. But when she came down and applied for the job, again, the government said that NAFTA had to hire minorities because of the laws at the time. And when she did, they told her the quota for the year was done, not your ability, your quota. So she could do something else. So she taught school and was director of the USO. And she said, well, I'll wait again. If it's something stops her right there, then she just moves to the left or right and goes around till till her time comes. And so she taught. And then the next year when the quota opened again, then they called her in and there she started. So it's being prepared and staying focused. And I was really amazed when she started there saying that she was as prepared and remembered all of the things that she was supposed to know 20 years later. Yes, she was incredible. I was also impressed that in 1960, no woman had dared signed her name to a report, even if she contributed a bulk of the research. Yet... Your mom did just that. 
And she also dared at a time when desegregation was still not quite accepted at Langley. She asked to be in the room with the engineers, who were all men, so she could hear them firsthand discuss the numbers that she would be crunching later on. So knowing that, as well as other ways she interacted, would you call your mom fearless? Oh, of course. She was definitely fearless. She, again, using granddaddy's mantra, she knew what she knew, and she knew they didn't, and she knew that she could contribute to the team which was always a thought of hers because she never tried to do anything alone. She didn't want to do it so that somebody would say something about her. She wanted the team to succeed, and then she would do whatever she had to to make sure that the team succeeded. So I think that's her confidence in what she knew. And as Kathy said, I think she was a visionary. And as far as segregation was concerned, she was so smart, they had to forego the fact that she was black, although they knew it because they needed answers. And as far as going into the meetings, she would get work done. And then in the decision-making room, which were the meetings, things would change. And she wanted to be there because her analytic geometry, and I guess Dr. Clater, I think it was analytics of space maybe, that put her ahead of the guy. She said engineers were engineers. They weren't mathematicians. Catherine, what's what's your reaction to that? Fearless was her middle name. She didn't wear it. She was it. She was able to show it by the confidence she had in her work. Catherine, starting with you, are there other things the movie may have depicted different to your mom's true experiences? Well, yes, that particular passage was one I almost read to you because I thought it interesting when she said their bathrooms weren't marked. She said so when she went to the work in, over in that building with the white engineers, she saw a bathroom and she went because it was closest. And she came and she said, I didn't announce where I went. I just got back to my job. So the joke was on them, actually. But I think the movie, you know, depicted in its own way to sell tickets partly, but also to give you an inkling. And yes, the bathrooms were insufficient and less than, and the cafeteria less than. But if you dwell on that as a working person with a job to do, you're spinning your wheels. And that wasn't what those women were about. They were about productivity, doing what they had to do, they also showed us as being little girls. I was the little one with the pom-poms, but in actuality, in the late 50s, early 60s, when Mama's main work was being done, we were in high school. I think it was just easier on script writing not to have teenagers, but the story was right. Joylette, what's, what's your reaction to that? Well, as far as things in the movie that were not quite the same, number one, granddaddy never drove a car. So he, his arrangement to get the family, not just her, but the family, moved. He had to rent a truck and a driver at least twice a year to bring them back and forth that hundred some miles. And at the time, of course, there were no interstates. So it was a little harder to do that hundred miles. As far as, like Kathy said about the bathrooms, and that also showed that NASA didn't have bathrooms in some buildings for colors because there weren't any there. So I think that might have been an, another thing. But I give credit to the director, Ted Melfi, because I said he only had two hours to put that story together and put it on the screen. And he did it in such a way that even little children said, why did she have to go so far to the bathroom? Well, she didn't have to go that far, but she had to go some. So it, it just brought those stories to life. And for that reason, they did a good job. I think Granddaddy didn't ask for or accept money to send the kids to school. They did it themselves. And like I said, when the kids got older, like the boys had boy jobs and the girls either helped at home or whatever. So as they got older, 
age-appropriate jobs they had, but everybody was part. It was a family effort. And my grandmother, who was a school teacher before she got married, became a housewife and a mother and did whatever she had to in those roles to support the family. And they were not unique. If we look into so many of the stories of so many, probably most Black people, that's how they worked. That's how they survived. You were survivors, so you figured out ways to solve problems and live. We're just telling the story and giving information that could be used as a course because so much of our story has not been told, our meaning our Black people. And it needs to be told, and young people need to know the effort that our ancestors went to to help us have a better world. I agree, especially for a book to be released under the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, I was just, in hindsight, just the part where she said, I didn't follow the rules in real life. That's really not a true statement, just as it is. What she's saying is, if I thought it was wrong, and I knew a way, as Joelette said, to get around it or find another way, I just did it. I didn't announce it. So, no, she followed rules. She definitely lived a high standard of living. She expected that from us, but she knew right from wrong. And if she thought there was injustice, she worked on a committee. When the young people would come, they started hiring young Blacks people to be secretaries at Langley, their math skills were below par. And she would tutor them. So she would do that kind of assistance to make sure that she was bringing them up to snuff, you know. And I just know that the world is a better place because she and people like her looked back and pulled somebody up behind them because she rode to work with the same woman for 33 years. She did not ride to work with, that's another misnomer. She didn't ride to work with those other two ladies, although we knew them very well. We went to school with some of their kids, but the woman she rode with also was a member of her church and a member of her sorority, the Alpha Kappa Alpha Incorporated sorority. But her loyalties, were to her community. And if it was something she could do that would make it better, that's where she spent her time. But it wasn't a big deal because they had to ride together. A lot of them didn't have cars. And Langley at that time was out in, you know, you think of cities forming and then further out as people build bigger houses. Well, that's kind of how it was. That was farmland. And to get to Napa, you know, to have those big wind tunnels and all, they weren't right in the city proper. So it was a little ways off the bus route. So they usually carpooled. And she rode with this one friend that we grew up, Eunice Smith, for years. And she died before mom. The other ladies died in 05 and 08, I believe, Jolette. And mom says, I believe that. All the attention is because I was the only one worth left living. I said, well, probably they each have a story to tell. That's what's so insidious about the idea that these women were hidden. All the ticker tape parades and all, we laughed. We said, we never even thought about it. They had the astronauts, but they didn't have the people that did the work that got them up there and back. But in that time, that wasn't, it wasn't our place to do a lot of complaining. She was just happy with her job, and we followed right along with her. That's a great way of putting it. So, Joylette, in reading the book, it's clear your mom was very humble. How would she feel about being the subject of a Genius Beats Fear podcast? Did she think of herself as a genius or as someone who battled fear? And do you think of her as a genius? Well, that never came into my mind. I majored in math, so I was thinking the way she thought in a general sense. Like, we never feared math or science because it was in our house. But as far as being a genius, that never came into my mind until my 
doctor, my primary doctor said, your mom was a genius. I said, oh, really? And I hadn't thought about it. But then in the past few years, having met all these wonderful, wonderful people that we've met in her receiving awards and degrees and finding out about her getting a degree in South Africa, University of Johannesburg. It's like, I mean, that's just earth shattering for somebody who she wasn't working for that. She would almost roll her eyes and say, oh, really? Because she said, I was just working. In fact, I don't call it work. She said, I loved what I was doing. So I never worked a day in my life. I think the fearlessness was there, but I don't think she had a superior feeling. She just said, I knew more, but because I had all the support when I was at West Virginia State and what my professors did versus some people who didn't, because West Virginia State at the time had one of the best reputations for a math program, even then West Virginia University, because she said we had two PhDs in the math department and they didn't at the time. So she took advantage of that, took advantage of the fact that she could help she said, I like hard problems. Those are the ones I like the best. I like math because either you're right or you're wrong. I always tried to do my best because I didn't want them to bring my work back to me to redo, and they never did. And I think that came out in the movie in a very subtle way, but they were saying they were so confident in her calculations. And if you could look at what they had to do to do the calculations using that calculator with 10 by 10 keys on it for the numbers and then transfer the numbers with a pencil and then later transfer that to punched cards or punched tape. You know, today kids just can't fathom what that was. That's what that early work included. I even had to do that 10 years later or less than 10 years, but she just loved the challenge and that's all that was important, and she could stay focused. And when she came home, she was home. All the people did pretty much the same thing. All the stories would be very similar. We were musical, and I don't know that everybody was musical, but we were all musical. We didn't have big houses. You did what you had to. We did board games all the time. She just had us always thinking and challenging our minds. But we had fun. We weren't living in a house with a geek. You know, some people might think that. I mean, she was in activities. We were in activities. It seems almost impossible, but most of them lived just like that. One of the other daughters, Miss Vaughn's daughter, her daughter said, my mother would be mortified from all this attention. So they were all just like that. The difference was just mama's level of vision, you know, being able to see forward in that three-dimensional field called space. <laughs> I love it. Well, I would definitely not call her a geek. Catherine, what do you think your mom would have to say about being called a genius? <laughs> I said that the name of your podcast is very fitting. I said, but we never used that word. I think people, even in her church after 50 and 60 years, when they found out after the movie, you know, people started saying, oh, I knew your mother worked at Langley, but I didn't know what she did. Our point of it being is that was not what defined her. She never went to somebody and said, oh, I work at Langley. I'm a mathematician. And she said, hello, who are you? You know, and I said it was the people outside of the family who saw and expected from her. She always had a, whatever she was in, she was either going to be the president or the treasurer because her choir, they wouldn't let her give up the presidency. So she had to retire from the choir to get out of the role. She was national treasurer of the National Technical Association, which was started back in the days when Black engineers were not allowed to become part of the IEEE, so they started their own, the National Technical Association. And I mean, flooded with brilliant people. Her community involvement, she was on boards, her sorority, she was bachelor's of that. So others saw her value and she accepted the role very graciously did it well, 
but she was a good member also. So it did not matter. The roles did not define her, just her work. She was just a different kind of person. She was able to <laughs> model for us what she expected, and each of us has had leadership roles in whatever we did. Jolette was a manager in her office. I was a team leader, counselor in my job. It just sort of came with the territory. Oh, you're Katherine Johnson's daughter. That's what it is now. But back when I was a teacher, I just did my job, enjoyed what I did, and that's what she always wanted. Follow your passion. Be diligent about it. Be good at it. Be prepared, you know, and always learn. So both Jolette and I went on and got higher degrees. But it was almost seamless in the fact that if you expect nothing, she would say, you will get nothing. And we just tried to emulate those characteristics without knowing that's what we were doing. I mean, hindsight is always something when you can look back and say, oh, maybe we did that <laughs> because of the way mama lived. You know, we didn't expect to see ourselves in a position of what we, we've traveled all over the country. And Joelette said to South Africa, and we've had to speak in front of large groups. Suppose we weren't prepared. We would not be able to extend her legacy the way I hope we've done so far and will continue to do and have impressed upon our children that we expect that from them. I read that in the past when your mother was asked about the challenges of being black in a segregated workplace or of having upended the no woman policy in her division's research meetings, she was most likely to reply, I was just doing my job, which is something you've mentioned throughout today's interview. I'm going to start with you, Catherine. Did she consider herself a trailblazer? And did you realize growing up that she was making history? No, you said it. She was just doing job. She said, what's all the fuss about? So that's what I was saying when I said she just did her work. If it pleased you, then she was happy for that. Because she was a very outgoing person. Her work spoke for her. So I think her work ethic, it would be interesting if she had written a letter to herself. You know how you write a letter now to yourself. I could only imagine what she would say, and it would be the same that she said right up to the day, because she didn't get sick. She just was tired and went to sleep. She said, be prepared. Enjoy what you're doing. I never worked a day in my life. And if you live your life that way on a constant basis, then, you know, it's not an effort. It's in you. It's in your DNA. They said, well, do you like math? And we all said, it was never made to not like we found something interesting in it because she started us out playing games. We love numbers. We work jigsaw puzzles even now. We love crossword puzzles. And, you know, it's just part of it is the training. But it's what you do with your mind. You can't just, if you do nothing, you get nothing. That's what she would always say. To add to it, we could tell stories all day long. So I've got a couple. One is that when she retired, she still used her computer for years. In fact, she said up to probably a year before she died, I want my computer because I want to be able to type. Mom, you can't even see good. What are you talking about typing? So she had her computer and she told me, she said, look at this email. I've got it from this long name from somebody from S-U-N-Y and they want to give me a doctorate degree. What should I do? So I looked it up and I said, Mom, the long name is the president of the State University of New York in Farmingdale, and they want to give you an honorary doctorate. No, nobody has to call you doctor, because she would say, I didn't earn it. I said, but you're coming. Then another time in Philadelphia, 1977, she was put into an exhibit with, in tribute to black scientists and engineers, and there was 23 men, and the lady that did the drawings said, well, how come you don't have any women? And they said, well, we don't know any. They, meaning Philadelphia Electric Company, who, who sponsored it. And she said, well, I know one, and I, I didn't know that lady and still didn't know her. 
And so that event happened in February where the country was supposed to lower all of our house temperatures for energy conservation. And she said, I don't think I can come because I can't stay in the hotel in the temperature 60 some degrees. And I live near. I said, well, mom, you can stay at my house, but you're coming and I'll take you over to that. So she was just, if it didn't make sense, she just wasn't about doing it. She was very pragmatic. There needed to be a reason why you did something or why you did not do something. And with organizations, she never, I don't think she thought being president of or being whatever, if they nominated her because they saw her skills shown in whatever she did or how she said things or her contribution. But I don't see that she would campaign to be president of or whatever. And the minister who gave her eulogy said when he found out, and he was her minister for, well, probably about 10 years left, but they knew each other about 30 years. And he said, I didn't even know until just recently who the treasurer of our church was. And I don't think they knew that they had one of the smartest women in the world as treasurer of our church. So she didn't wear that superior knowledge or whatever. She just didn't. She used it. If there was a message your mom would want our listeners to take away from this conversation today for other women, for other people of color, for anyone who may be marginalized because of their socioeconomic position, what do you think that would be? Joylette, we'll start with you. I think she would probably go into teacher mode. And I think she would say, do your best at all times. Be prepared and help others when you can. Because she tutored most of her lifetime and charged nobody. And be especially interested in young people because if you want to teach, children will learn if you want to teach them, if you have high expectations, and if their parents do the same. They have to expect much from them. And I think she would be very happy to know the impact that she's had on young people as young as five who are hearing her story or reading the book. And of course that her her family succeeds, but I think she would just be happy to know that she has impacted so many young people, women and men. Age was not a barrier. She said she liked talking to young people before they got tainted by older years and habits of other people. But there are also adults who have said to us how encouraging she has been to them. So I think just the whole story is just an encouraging and enlightening thing for young people to succeed in this world because it's it's a tough world out here. And Catherine, what do you think your mom would want our listeners to take away from this conversation? Well, I think she would want them to be inspired by learning and especially in the math and science areas, because although math can be static, science changes. And if it changes, you change. And she wanted you to get the most out of learning. Enjoy learning. Find your passion and work hard at it so that when a door opens, you will be prepared to walk through it and always help others. That was a big thing for her. Katherine Johnson may have said she was just doing her job. But those of us who recognize genius know this gifted mathematician played a key role in the space race, enabling the United States to draw even with the Soviet Union. And she went on to do more in her career. Contributing calculations to the parking orbit of Apollo 11's command and service module during the first crewed moon landing and working on the space shuttle. So, even as she grew up and was told by the law that she had to sit in the back of buses, climb to isolated theater balconies, and use colored water fountains and bathrooms because of the color of her skin, she showed the world she was capable and just as good as anyone else. And because of that, her accomplishments paved the way for other women and minority groups to shoot for the stars. 
And that, I think, is an equation we can all live with. Thank you again, Joylette and Catherine, for your time. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross Border Solutions. This podcast was executive produced by Mary Lynn Mitchum Strom. Jeannie Muchnick wrote the script. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello, with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You don't have to be a genius to see why that makes sense. This episode concludes our first season of Genius Beats Fear. We'll be back with more riveting stories of genius on season two. Until then.